0: All right let's begin. We're looking at Edmund Hammer Broadbent.
1: Yeah back in the 1980s I made a trip up to a place uh, right north of International Falls in Minnesota crossed over the Ontario border and there uh, there's a a farm where the Gerber family lives and I, I got acquainted with, with the Gerbers a little and Mrs. Gerber, uh, the mother of the clan, there was 12 children in the family, they, she was still living, very bright Christian witness, and their family had a remarkable testimony. And I found out that the father, who had since passed on to glory, he had been a gardener for E.H. Broadbent. Really? Yeah, and E.H. Broadbent was the man who wrote the, the great book the Pilgrim Church, which okay. had a, which had a remarkable influence on me, mm-hmm. and and so, uh, what brother Gerber? He was a Swiss Christian, from kind of a plain people type background. There were a lot of Mennonite type people in Switzerland.
0: Were they were they pig farmers?
1: Uh, they had chickens. They had uh, d- different forms of livestock. Okay. I think yeah.
0: I, I was with you in a farm up in Canada, north of Minnesota. Yeah. It was the first time I held a baby pig.
1: Oh, sure it was, enough.
0: It was not, not the experience I thought. I was. It was a very, yeah, I'm oh, sorry. <laughs>
1: Sam side. Gerber probably took you out and, and walked you through the chicken coop and mm-hmm. over by the pigs. yeah. Oh, how much fun.
0: Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, I remember that.
1: Yeah, and it, they were very pious folk who loved the Lord. And were a bright witness. They looked like Mennonites. They had had a kind of a Mennonite background, but they were strictly non-denominational. Okay. And and uh, but because they would dress in a similar way, the the Anabaptist people, who started some 500 years ago in the time of the Reformation, they. Uh, they have spawned all these groups like the Mennonites and the Amish and the Hutterites. Mm. And and maybe there's a group called the German Baptists, which are very similar in some ways. They're, they had a big influence in a lot of different groups. And generally speaking, when you meet folk who look like they're wearing the uniform, they have that certain kind of a hat, or maybe they cut their beard a certain way, and they have this look. Yeah, And they... All across the movement, they'll refer to themselves as plain people. Hmm. Yeah. And so even though you may not be able to recognize what branch of the Mennonite tree they're they're off of, yet they all respond to that term. So you'd say, are you one of the plain people? Interesting. And, And then we'll get talking, and one of the first questions they'll ask, and this is one of the Gerber men asked me this question. He said... What do you think about eternal security? Well, what they mean by it is do you hold to this once saved, always saved, it doesn't matter how I live type of theology?
0: Interesting.
1: Right, that's what they're really asking because they have a general opinion that amongst Baptists and a lot of evangelical people they think that it doesn't matter how you live.
0: We're just all about license just do whatever you want you get to go to heaven
1: well yeah they there there is that dark suspicion that they have and so he asked me that question and by the grace of god i had been reading through hebrews where it talks about how christ quote is the author of salvation of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him hmm. and i said I don't know that the term eternal security occurs in Scripture, but the term eternal salvation does. And so here you have salvation, which evidently is for eternity. Yeah. But who does it apply to? All those who obey Him.
0: Interesting.
1: So there you have it. You have both sides, yeah. both the idea of the eternity of God's salvation, but also that it's not given to unbelievers. There are people who disbelieve, turn away from God, and what, maybe they've had an experience or something, but they don't really know God. Hmm. So eternal salvation does not apply to them. It applies to those who have shown, by their faith, they go on to show the obedience of faith. Interesting. So yeah.
0: would, they, would they be
1: Arminian? Generally speaking, what happened in the time of the Reformation is that because the reformers took the same stance about the church-state relationship mm-hmm. that the Roman Catholics had before them, that the the this new movement with Conrad Grebel and uh, Balthazar Hubmeier and Felix Mance and Michael Sattler and George Blaurock, these men who were part of a mushrooming movement, they did not want to join with the Reformers, and therefore they tended to reject Reformation theology. They were not Augustinians.
0: <laughs> but they would still preach Perseverance of the Saints without saying Perseverance of the Saints. Yeah,
1: in their own way they had preached per- Perseverance of the Saints. Yeah. It, they that persevere unto the end shall be saved. So they're both using the same verse, both the Reformers and and the uh, and the Anabaptists, but the reformers had, had were so heavily weighted on the side of what is called forensic justification that you're justified in the legal sense in the courtroom of heaven,
0: hmm.
1: and and not laying enough emphasis on the Epistle of James okay. that you show your faith by your works. Yeah, and so that was that was the big rub. Okay, and and yeah. so to this day most of the plain people would be considered Arminian, I think. Okay. I think so. I think that's fair. But n- not all. There are many, like, um, there used to be a guy who was on the radio, Theodore Epp. He was from a Mennonite background. Okay. And he was very solid on, on these points. Hmm. So, but not not with the credit, really, to his Mennonite heritage. <laughs> <laughs> so... But I I wanted to talk about E.H. Broadbent because E.H. Broadbent in his travels through Europe and he traveled widely in Eastern Europe and he met many of these people who were persecuted. And a lot of them were these plain people. And so he would have them come through his home in England and then stay there as a way station. When they were fleeing persecution, oh, really, and move on from there in their travels to Canada or the United okay. States.
0: Wild. So he he touched a lot of a lot of Anabaptist types.
1: Yeah, like yeah. I don't
0: want any involvement with this government that's oppressing us.
1: Well, David Gooding told us because he traveled a lot in Eastern Europe and in uh-huh. Russia. He said that the farther you go east, when you're in Europe, going into you'll find more and more as you go from the the Uh, Eastern European countries, and then into Russia, increasingly the believers tend to be Armenian. And that's very surprising to us because uh, a lot of the fellowships that we work with here in the West are solidly uh, for preaching the doctrine of eternal security. They're very strong on it. They emphasize it all the time.
0: Yeah, like I can count on my hand the amount of times I've met people who
1: think you can lose their salvation it's not 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 the going thing yeah no no but we're in these countries where people are being persecuted and they've seen people defect hmm. and become traitors interesting and people giving up the faith yeah yeah uh, then that caught that raises this issue and therefore they'll sometimes say well wait a second we know we had a a guy in our group and he was so solidly saved but then he totally abandoned the faith Hmm. and so when you do see people apostatizing and totally tubing out it raises a serious question and in those countries where there's a lot of persecution it's a big issue
0: yeah man so he uh eh broadbent lived 1861 to 1945. yes so this is right we're entering a modern age from horse horse and buggy to car the yeah. world is in absolute upheaval. Um, kingdoms and monarchies and uh, empires are turning into democracies and dictatorships.
1: Yeah, yeah. When when you look at what happened at the time of Napoleon, uh, he turned, overturned kingdoms which were run by a royal family, a, a, a dynasty, and and he set up an entirely different form of government. He would sometimes just set up his own form of government. Many of these countries he conquered, and and uh, some of these countries would revert back to the idea of a of a, a hereditary dynasty, and and uh, but in the time that that Broadbent was was active, you had the the remnants. For instance, in Russia, you still had the czarist regime very much going on mm. in his, in the early days, in the ending of the 1800s, and in many of these other countries. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of foment going on. But in those times, there's a saying that this, the cross follows the sword.
0: Interesting.
1: So when you have blood in the streets, that is often a time when, because all the natural order of things is being thrown in chaos, this is our golden, this is our window. Hmm. This is our opportunity to reach in with the gospel. Interesting. And okay. so he was living in that time. And yeah. and one of the guys that he met was Frederick Bedecker.
0: Okay. And
1: Frederick Bedecker, uh, he had gotten converted, I think, in 1866. So he'd have been a full generation older than, than uh, well, more than that probably, than Uh, than Broadbent, but he had a tremendous influence. He uh, he went into Russia. He crossed all 11 time zones in Russia, and he got miraculously permission to preach in the Russian prison system all across. There were all these prisons. I think there were something like 300 of them. That he got into and was distributing bibles and preaching the gospel
0: now so would this be in communist russia or czarist czarist russia? russia okay this
1: is back like in the i think in the you know we should take up a time and talk about about uh bedeker okay uh he was actually a cousin to the bedeker who does the Bedeker travel guides
0: Oh, interesting yeah
1: yeah there's <laughs> so he had a connection yeah. with and and, uh, and they say that in Frederick Baedeker's travels he would send reports which would be included in, the, <laughs> in his cousin's travel guides <laughs> so yeah he, he, <laughs> he went to a lot of places which were not tourist destinations
0: yeah, the food is good but the prisons are really cold <laughs> Uh, That's great.
1: Yeah, you don't want to eat what the prisoners eat, but uh, he he was a great man of God and he had a great influence on Broadbent. Okay. Broadbent, I think, got married when he was like 30 years old, a woman named Dora, and they had eight children together.
0: Eight kids, get it.
1: Yeah, so he was a very committed family man, and it appears that he must have had some means because he was able to travel so much.
0: Interesting. Now he was a very smart, he knew German and was it French?
1: It German some and Russian. French. Well, if you knew French, you could go all over the place. And mm-hmm. German also. These were the major languages, mm-hmm. which would be a ticket. You could go, get into places in Russia and many of the other countries mm-hmm. with those languages and be able to preach or at least find somebody who could translate for you.
0: Okay. And I read that it was said that he's he was not a aggressive-looking man. He seemed like he was a very agreeable type.
1: Yeah, yeah, very winsome, with. happy guy. He's sort of a small fella. It, one of the interesting things was, though, though he was such a tidy Englishman, yet he mastered the art of falling asleep. In the most awkward places, so he'd be in these carriages, which, which uh, did not have struts and shock absorbers like our cars do today, and and yet he he would begin to relax his body, and he would start in one end of his body, so he'd relax his toes and his feet and his legs, and he would just relax, relax, relax until he just fall limp and be able to fall asleep in almost any position. <laughs> that's great. Isn't that, Some, where you've got to adapt. Yeah. And and because of his, he's just a congenial guy who slipped into a lot of countries that we would all say, that's a closed country. Yeah. That's a closed door. Hmm. We can't get in there. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And there were, not only did he follow the path of Bedeker, but he also opened the way for others who also went in and and labored in a lot of those countries, nice, and and which and there was a great work going on right before World War II. Okay, that was a great time of of harvest and reaping in some of these countries, like Romania and Bulgaria. There were these uh, times where they were going to experience tremendous upheavals and persecutions. Yeah, yeah.
0: So yeah, when was so Stalin? He would have he would have been rolling around this time. He yeah, not... he
1: was really active in the thirties. Okay. Yeah, he came into his own, and and he was he was a dictator over. Well, he died in the fifties. Okay. So, but the thirties, the forties, Joseph Stalin. Okay. And then and then up into the fifties. So, yeah, he was a terrible dictator.
0: And would. Uh, uh, Broadbent been traveling through the Soviet Union or Russia at the time. I, I'm not. I actually don't know how it all got combined. Um, uh, I'm
1: trying
0: during to... this time, or was it before Stalin? Because the Bolshevik. No,
1: no, no. He, uh... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Say what, what you can say. Well,
0: just the Bol- Bolshevik Revolution kind of World War One was kind of a, a launch pad for that.
1: Right. Right.
0: So, I didn't know when, what years he was.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, um, G.H. Lang wrote the little biography about Broadbent, and I think it's available. You can find it. Um, it's, it's a nice little book. What's the name of that? Uh, yeah, Edmund Hammer Broadbent, Saint and Pioneer. Okay. By G. H. Lang, G. H. Lang was an eccentric Englishman who really liked Bedeker and liked Broadbent, and and uh, and promoted him. Uh, yeah, he spent a lot of time in Poland. Okay. He claimed that there were hundreds of little assemblies all across the country of Poland. Hmm. Now, when I talk to people who are laboring in now, they don't talk about a huge number of congregations that are, you know, Evangelical New Testament style churches. Yeah. Non-denominated. They, they, they don't but uh, Broadbent in his day said that there was before World War II there was quite a movement going on. So yeah. So I don't know if, uh, if that was an overly optimistic view or if that was really the case. You know, he he, he labored in Belgium, Poland, Germany, Austria, the Baltics, he did dip into Russia and Turkey. And it also preached in Egypt and he made a trip to North and South America. So how somebody can make these far flung journeys is yeah. just baffling to me.
0: And, and it was all pioneer mission work. It was not necessarily denominational invitation.
1: Yeah, you have people who are favorable in your direction. Okay. You know, they're open to you. They're saying, "Hey, you know, we want some help." Uh, and when you're in these persecuted places where the church is being persecuted, uh, you're just looking for help. Yeah. You know, you're not always expecting everyone to be able to dot every i and cross every t. Hmm.
0: Now, I'm told things about him are not there's not a lot of information about him because a lot of his work was destroyed, apparently.
1: Oh, Broadbent's work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that is a problem. I mean, a lot of these guys, they weren't that interested in promoting themselves and, and uh, you know, to track, a real historian would try to track down all the letters they sent mm-hmm. and, but we have enough information and the the important thing about Broadbent is his book, which he published in 1931, called The Pilgrim Church. And the Pilgrim Church makes a point that all down through the centuries, there have been these groups of Christians, though there cannot be proven, usually cannot be proven, an organic connection from one group to another to another. Still, these groups had much in common. And so there were these groups called, such as the Donatists, that Augustine talked about having debates with. Okay. And, and uh, they were in Northern Africa. Or the Nestorians, who were way over in China. have huh. Nestorians in the East. Or the Paulists. Or the Bogomils, hmm. or the Albigensians and the Waldensians, or the Lollards, and there were these groups which were uh, at different times during what is sometimes called the the uh, the Dark Ages, okay. or the Middle Ages. Yep. Uh, that time after the the uh, time of the Church Fathers, a lot of it. Well, some, some of these groups go back to the time of the Church Fathers okay. and then reach up into the Dark Ages. And so Broadbent is very optimistic about them hmm. and believes that there were genuine real, genuine, real, authentic New Testament Christianity among them being practiced by them. The problem with the kind of history that Broadbent has given is there's a saying that the winners write the history. And so the public groups that maintain power, such as the state churches, they're the ones who were in a position to have their histories recorded, whereas these people who are constantly being persecuted and those groups that I mentioned, there were actual crusades during the period of the crusades. where they would go out. I think there was an Albigensian crusade and a Waldensian crusade.
0: Really? Yeah. They wanted to go exterminate them.
1: Yeah. These were not crusades to the Middle East to go down to Jerusalem and fight against uh, 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 the Muslims, but these were crusades in Europe against heretics that were branded as heretics. So saying all of that, Broadbent has written this history, basically, in a, I would say, at times, overly optimistic, but we also believe, from what we can gather from the record, an authentic and real history okay. that proves that the large state churches, such as the Roman Catholic Church, or the Eastern Orthodox Church, or the Reformed Reformation Churches, were not the only thing going on.
0: Yeah, yeah. There
1: were there was authentic Christianity working outside of them and sometimes quite measurable. It hmm. was it was at times a large thing going on, but what we would call an underground movement. Hmm. So,
0: cuz that's that's kind of an assumption that there was the New Testament with the apostles and then kind of I don't know, some kind of growth and then in 300 Constantine says, oh, now it's official, the Catholic Church. And then, from then, only Catholics. And then, the Reformation.
1: Well, the way it worked was Paul, he stated himself, After my departing shall grievous wolves come, even from among your own selves shall men arise, teaching perverse things to draw away men after themselves. So he predicted... That there was coming a time after he was off the scene, mm-hmm. so he's looking forward to his soon death. We think he maybe died uh, in the maybe around the year sixty-six or so, okay. and and he's anticipating that, and and he says afterward there's going to be a, a departure, and it's predicted in certain of the epistles, 2 Thessalonians, 2 Timothy, it talks about, well, the Lord also himself had predicted a falling away. There's going to be this time of crisis which would come to the apostles. And, and, And so it appears that after the death of the apostles, and it was starting to happen already while they were still living, the mystery of iniquity does already work, John wrote, but then he's he's talking about there's coming a time when the antichrist will come. So he st- says, look, we already see these signs of departure, but there's coming a time of apostasy, and it's, and and you need to know about it. And so they start predicting this. Yeah. Well, did it happen? Is the church a general history? of an upward rise and that all the events of church history with the way in which it organizationally began to become this giant superstructure with a earthly headquarters and and all of the, the way it became structured, was that divine? Was that meant by God? Or was it actually largely a departure from God? Hmm. So a lot of believers, myself included, believe that that Paul and the other apostles, Peter and John and our Lord himself, predicted there was coming a falling away. And that's actually what happened after the death of the apostles. And so they started introducing things like um, uh, infant baptism. They started introducing things like, uh, well, they they became really fuzzy about Bible prophecy. Mm. We don't really know. And, and, uh, and coming up with funny ideas about what is meant by the coming of the Lord. And, and little by little, elements that were characteristic of the New Testament church were being lost. Mm. The heavenly hope, the assurance of salvation, uh, the idea of a believing church. Instead of a believing church, you have a mixed multitude as a standard thing. Yeah. And then, when Constantine came in, in, well, I think it was 308. Yeah,
0: okay.
1: And that's usually the date given. What he did was he legitimized Christianity. He wasn't uh, invoking the Roman Catholic system. That really waited until the 600s when Gregory became the first universal pope. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. In this, But oftentimes, people connected with... The development of Roman Catholicism because it was in 308 or wherever where Constantine said that we're gonna legitimize Christianity and make it the state religion okay but that was a big shift
0: yeah mm-hmm.
1: the Lord Jesus never ran for office he, the Christianity in the time of the Apostles was not the official state religion yeah of the kingdom of Rome mm-hmm. they weren't asking for that they weren't thinking they were talking about the kingdom of heaven not not setting up a kingdom down here on earth. Yeah, that was not their thinking, and and so the the emergence of the state church relationship, which was followed on by both Roman Catholicism and in the, later in the Eastern Church, because they would event you know they had split yeah. the Western and Eastern Church, and then the Reformed churches followed the kind of state church thing, mm-hmm. and and that was the development of it. And the premise of Broadbent's book is that that, largely, is a departure from the Word of God. Hmm. It led to things like the Crusades. It led to so many of the persecutions. And when you study, for instance, the burning of witches in Europe, a lot of these witches were simply heretics, who might have been our evangelical brothers and sisters. So, yeah, you brand them as a heretic, why? Well, they meet at night. They meet in secret. They go out in the woods. They have their private little meetings. Why are they meeting out there? If they, if they were right and good people, they wouldn't be meeting in secret like they are. They must be witches and warlocks, and yeah. they're practicing the occult.
0: Interesting. Well,
1: they're the underground church. Yeah. So I, I think you have to include, whenever you talk about burning witches in, in Europe, during the middle ages you have to include the victims of that p- policy as the underground church
0: yeah interesting yeah yeah man so he wrote on this he was oh fluent in, powerfully yeah i remember going through the book um it was a while ago and i don't remember much much of anything so there was an interesting story i heard about him on his ability to sleep wherever he was yeah <laughs> He was in a village. I think you wrote on it in the article. He was in a village, and he got in this little tiny, you know, stiff bed in this house. And the the man of the house came and got in bed next to him. Oh, right, and right, then right. The 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 wife got in on the other side, <laughs> you know, next to her husband. <laughs> <and> <laughs> And he's like, "All right, well, here we go."
1: Yeah, right, right. There, they were. I think that was a story from Poland. Okay. And it was. He comes into this room, into this home, and it's just one big room, one big room, and there's a a bed. There's this bed there, and it was, uh, you know, it's is it it not a single bed. So he he gets ready. He climbs into bed, and then the host comes in. He climbs in next to him, and then after that. <laughs> the, the, uh, uh, the host's wife, the hostess, she comes in too. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> so you, you have so many funny experiences. One, he, he would talk about such crowded meetings in some of these places where there'd be so many people packed into a building that there wasn't, there was barely enough oxygen to keep the lamps burning.
0: Oh, really? Yeah,
1: you'd just That's be funny. suffocating.
0: Is this one? This was also in your article about. Uh, he was unsure on if it was lack of, lack of height, uh, a culture that did not embrace hygiene, or if they were going through hard times and they smelled so bad.
1: Oh, oh, yeah.
0: It was not for the faint of. Nose.
1: Yeah. So in in the old days, it's very common in the West now where people take a shower once a day and maybe more than once a day. But traditionally in a lot of Western societies, m- many people would take a bath once a week. And when I was growing up, I remember my visiting uh, some of my relatives and they would set out a big tub... On the floor of the kitchen, be heating, heating up um, uh, water on the stove, because they had a, a hand pump inside their house, ah. and they would get that water out of the well and heat it up on the stove, and then everyone would take turns taking a bath in that tub. Man. You know you. And they'd say, "Well, your cousin's done now. You can go in." And then you, we go in and we take a bath using the same water usually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But and then you, that was our that was our weekend bath, so that you'd be clean for uh, going to the next week. Man, you'd wash your hands and face. Yeah. But you wouldn't, and so. The, there's that opinion that you don't want to wash all the natural oils off your skin and, and uh, it's, a, it's a sign of becoming soft if you're uh, bathing too often. Yeah, it's just a cultural thing. Yeah, man. I mean, it's not... We, we don't operate that way anymore, but that's the way it used to be. Yeah,
0: and he commented on some things like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, that'd be a real thing. When you go into these other countries, they'll have cultural things going on about the way they prepare their food and different things about dress and just their lives in general which you've got to be willing to roll with it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Broadbent, was he a dynamic speaker?
1: That's a good. He was a very gracious, man. Okay. I don't know that he he was a he was not a bombastic man, I would okay. say. But uh yeah, you, you wish you could hear his voice and sh- uh, sharing the word. Like, it was so interesting to me when I met the Gerbers, and Mr. Gerber had worked with E.H. Broadbent, lived at their home, hmm. taking care of their yard, and done things. He was their gardener. Yeah. And to have had that connection, Well, it wasn't that long ago. I was born in 1955. He died in what, 1945, I think? 45 was it?
0: Yeah, 1945. Yeah. So so it's not that far removed. No.
1: Yeah, he'd be... He really was in my great-grandparents' generation. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the contribution he made was truly great when he wrote that book, but he was also a man who himself would put to practice this idea of going out and seeking the lonely sheep in these persecuted countries. Mm. And so by going into uh, those different countries in Eastern Europe, he was demonstrating a real charitableness. And uh, I've mentioned before that there was another book that's very much akin to Broadbent's book, and that's, Leonard Verdine's book, The Reformers and Their Stepchildren, mm. covers the time of the Anabaptists. And one of the things that Leonard Verdine did in his book is that he, he tries to show that when the Anabaptist movement sprang up in the time of the Reformation, it had all the marks of being a continuation of the underground church from before the time of the Reformation. Mm. So about 500 years ago, there were these men raised up like Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox and Zwingli, and they began preaching justification by faith. And there was this great groundswell of response. And whole countries, whole nations were transformed by it. Mm -hmm. Simultaneous with that, really beginning around 1525, there was these men, mainly from Switzerland, but not entirely, some in the Netherlands, other places, who, who said, the Reformers have not gone far enough. Yeah, we mm-hmm. need to return to the New Testament simplicity. Hmm. And they're duplicating what they're, what the Roman Catholics had done before them. And we need to go all the way back, not to, not to go back to the State Church of Europe, yeah. but rather go back to the New Testament pattern. Okay. So they're, you'd call them primitivists. They said the primitive pattern of the church is the true pattern.
0: Interesting. That's
1: what they're saying. Okay. And, and one of the ways that, that Leonard Verdein tries to prove this is he says that when these Anabaptists, this movement, hundreds of people are getting baptized, you've got this, this mushrooming movement taking place. And they almost immediately begin to be persecuted when it happens. And when they're taken to court, in the accusations braced against them, in court, in the court documents, a lot of these court documents are still extant. They're available. They can be, if you can read, if you can get access to them. Yeah. And if you can read Old German, you can read them for yourself. And, and so they were accused of being Donatists. Well, the Donatists... Were a group that Augustine oh, okay. had fought against way back in his time, or a Stabler, a Cathar, a Cathar were the um, the Albigensians, Waldensians were accused of being the pure ones. You're uh, uh, th- that was the idea of being a Cathar. You're you're, you're claiming that you're pure. Hmm. Well, we believe that when we trust Christ, we're we're redeemed and we're washed in the blood of Christ yeah. and God saves us not in order to sin, but to saves us out of our sins and from our sins mm-hmm. and that God is cleansing us. So it's uh, the persecutors would say, you're preaching perfectionism.
0: Interesting. See?
1: Yeah. You're preaching a fanaticism. No, no, this is just Christianity. And so the same accusations... Um, uh, well, a communist, that was one, that that you live in communes. Well, that was one of the things which was they accused them of, that you're trying to break away and form your own community, and you're living communistically.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah,
1: that was an accusation made against them. Yeah. So it was the same accusation that had been raised during the time of the Dark Ages, that after the Reformation... Was raised against the Anabaptists wow. and so what what uh Leonard Verdine does in his books he walks oh, walks through all of these different expressions which were used to accuse the old believers in the old time yeah and then how they're now being used the same accusations being used to accuse the new Interesting. movement and yeah he's, he's just saying that this is not a new movement yeah it, it, it there's new men, new people. It, it looks like a new movement. But really, it's the same old underground church that's been going on all through the, the centuries. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. And that's really, in a way, the premise of Broadbent's book. Yeah. Highly encouraging. Yeah. And, but basically at odds with many of the official histories, like the, there are a lot of major histories of the church, which have been written, very helpful, very good in a lot of ways, but usually following the public history of the major movements, the big movements, the official movements, the yeah. state churches, movements of that sort, yeah. whereas the underground church gets gets little attention. And quite often, they will accuse them of being heretics.
0: Yeah,
1: I think there have been heretics amongst these groups all down through the centuries, just like there are a lot of weird ideas floating around now. Mm -hmm. Like, in the time of the Reformation, there was a city called Munster, which was taken over by uh, some guys who were... uh, Well, they were kind of like David Koresh, who, if if you're not too young to know, was the one down in Waco, Texas, who... He had a Seventh-day Adventist-type background, okay. and he got a group of people to barricade themselves in the compound that they had in this property outside of Waco. And they basically were seceding from the Union. Yeah. They basically were saying, we're going to get our own armaments, form our own militia here, and we're going to live as if we are separate from the United States and start our own thing. Yeah. Well, the government says, you can't do that. and they came in and they surrounded them and ended up burning, there was a fire.
0: Yeah, and
1: who caused the fire, that's they the question. murdered them all. Yeah, they were all, many of them died yeah. in the fire. And it was, a, it was a tragic thing, but after the fire, there were people who cried out, this was unjust, you shouldn't have done it this way. But generally speaking, around the nation, people said, you know, if you do what David Koresh did, that's what you can expect to have happen. Huh. They, they, there was no giant groundswell of protest saying, uh, uh, we demand impeachment of the government that did this. No,
0: you have nuts. Timothy McVeigh took it to
1: heart. Oh, right, Timothy McVeigh. Yeah. But, but here's my point, that if you treat infant baptism as similar to in the state church an application for your citizenship or applying for a social security number and so every time somebody gets baptized as an infant they are they are enlisting as a, a citizen of christendom yeah well then if at a later time people say you know I was baptized as a baby but that was just a little water sprinkled on my head. That didn't make a change at all. Yeah. I was not born again in baptism. I did not become a, a citizen of the kingdom of God. I, I was just a wet sinner. That's all. Yeah. And now that i put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, I want to renounce my infant baptism, and I'm going to do it by getting baptized as an adult. Yeah. A second baptism. Well, that's what the Anabaptists did. And when they did that, the people who looked on said, wait a second, if you renounce your first baptism, that is the same in our thinking as if you're renouncing your citizenship in Christendom. Mm-hmm. You, you can't, we can't have people living here in this area of Austria yeah. or this area of Switzerland or this area of Spain or this area of France. We can't have people living here who totally renounce their citizenship. You, what category will we put you in? You want to live here as if you are citizens but not be a citizen. Well, that, the Christians were simply saying, wait a second, I'm just saying I wasn't born again when I was baptized. Yeah. I'm a citizen. I'll pay my taxes. I'm going to be a, 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 a law-abiding person. I'm not a revolutionary. But they were treated like they were revolutionaries. They were treated like they were a threat, hmm. and for that reason, when the government decided we're going to we're going to hunt these people down or we're going to kill them, well, there was no real protest against it. What else are you going to do? These people are revolutionaries. Yeah, and so they would drown them. They'd burn them at the stake. They they torture them. Mm-hmm. And they and people thought, well, I guess you have to. Man. Do you follow my thinking? Yeah, what, yeah very the, much. That, yeah. Was the, that was the chemistry, yeah. and that was the reason why people allowed it to go on.
0: And that's why there's so so little documented about the teachings of these folks, because they all got killed.
1: A lot of them got killed. Uh, Meadow Simon didn't get killed. He, his His complete writings, or most of his writings are... Uh, available and okay. translated in English. You can read them. And Very interesting, though. Yeah. Very interesting. And you wonder if they had not been persecuted the way they had. If the Refor- Reformation churches mm-hmm. had not treated them the way they had, yeah. they were not as fierce in their persecution as was the Roman Catholics. I mean, the Reformation churches were children in comparison to... When it comes to persecution in comparison to the Roman Catholic Church, the okay. Roman Catholics, man, they killed them by the hundreds
0: yeah,
1: yeah. but in all, all that said, if the Reformation churches had been more patient in the matter and appreciated these people as they should have, mm. it, it might have been it would have helped the the Anabaptists. To understand and appreciate and adopt more of the Reformation views, such as a clearer thinking about justification by faith.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, that was a great, great tragedy, really, the persecution of those early days.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I know that in my age group, millennial, maybe even down to Gen Z types, they get into college. And we want this authenticity, we want reality, yeah. we don't, we're sick of the show, and kind of, hey, let's keep the youth entertained church. And so they'll go to school, maybe even a Christian college, um, and say, well, I want to get back to the original one. Oh. you know, I want to listen to the original punk rock band, not the new posers. And so they go to the original, well, and they've been lied to histor- histor- historically, his- history-wise, and so they think, well, the original ones are the Catholics. Oh, And so they'll show up at a Catholic church. And in fact, trad Catholics, traditional Catholics, the pre-Vatican II or whatever, yeah, right. the Latin mass with the head coverings, there's, there's been an increase in young people going to trad Catholic churches. Wow. Because they want to get back to the original. And this, yeah. is, this is what they've been told is the original one. This yeah. is what they think we came from. And so and I, I think most Americans, don't, we don't understand how influenced our thinking is by Anabaptists.
1: If, if the New Testament pattern, mm-hmm. which is given for us, is the final pattern, then Roman Catholicism is not true. Uh, and so the scriptures say, tell us in, in Timothy, that the Word of God thoroughly furnishes us onto every good work. So everything that you need to know about how you should function as a Christian, not only individually, but corporately with other Christians, mm-hmm. is given to us in the Word of God. But what people who hold to a tradition, the, the traditions is they're saying, No, we have the Word of God and the traditions. Yeah. But you're at odds with the scriptures. The scriptures are saying the Word of God thoroughly furnishes us. It is a it's a final message. And also in Jude he talks about the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Hmm. So when Jude is writing his epistle, he's able to talk about the faith which in a final way has already been communicated. Hmm. Not something which is going to be altered and adjusted through the years so that we're going to add different beliefs about the Assumption of Mary or uh, all all kinds of other doctrines that are going to come in, different views about the nature of the Lord's Supper. All of those innovations, and there are heaps of them, Mm -hmm. which have been introduced by these church traditions, they're just anti-biblical. And it's confusing. Yeah. Man.
0: Well, that's really good. Do you have any, any final words about... Our friend... E.H. Broadbent.
1: Edmund Hammer Broadbent. What a
0: good middle name,
1: Hammer. Yeah, yeah, what a great guy. What a lovely guy who, he was not a sectarian man. He worked with all kinds of Christians. He went where he had an open door. Hmm. And he went to some of the most persecuted and despised of the Christians in these faraway places. Hmm. And, and but God really blessed him, and he's following in the footsteps of Frederick Bettiker. Okay. And sometimes we'll have to talk about Frederick Bettiker. Yeah. Because that would be a highly encouraging, highly encouraging thing.
0: Nice. All right. Well, thank you so much. That's it.